0: Bloomberg's podcast on the world of deals, mergers, and acquisitions. I'm Ed Hammond, the senior deals reporter here at Bloomberg, and joining me today is Paul Taubman, the founder, chairman, and chief executive of Investment Bank PJT Partners. So Paul, I want to get straight into this. It's 2013, you've left Morgan Stanley, you're working out of a spare office in the law firm while got you, you're doing some of the biggest M&A deals in history, basically as a one-man band. That sounds like kind of a good gig, so why... Change all of that to go and set up your own bank.
1: Well, it was it was a great gig. I, I could not have had more fun. It could not have been more different than the 30 years I spent at Morgan Stanley. And uh, those are some of the fondest memories of my professional career. But as I began to think about the next chapter in my professional journey, it was clear to me that being around people, uh, having a group of very energetic, intelligent folks to, to bounce things off of, to share success with was important. And I knew that this was really just a, a way station on the, on the way to building something. And the only question was, uh, how big and, uh, how fast.
0: And the firm now has been, sort of up and running for a while obviously is is a public company at this point what's the what's the sort of direction and how how do you feel really about the first i, I suppose 2 years of of being out there with PJT
1: well it, it it's an odd thing to be a public company since in many ways we're a startup firm building it from scratch now we inherited a wonderful infrastructure if we were an apartment we'd say we have good bones I guess as the child, we can say that we have great, great genes from our parents since Blackstone spun off uh businesses, which we then merged into and rebranded. And what we're trying to do is do all of this and build out the firm the way we see it with a clear vision as to what uh, what the firm of the future should look like, but doing it in the public eye, which is which is a bit odd, but we were public for a simple reason, which was in order to separate these businesses from Blackstone and create a clear break, it needed to be separate. And the only way to separate it was to spin it off. And since Blackstone itself is publicly traded, we became on day one a publicly traded company. And what I've tried to do is to ignore much of that and just build it out the way it should be built out and not take particular mind to the fact that we're publicly traded.
0: Which is what? When you say build it out the way it should be out, what, what does that entail?
1: Well, I think our, our perspective on the world uh, is pretty simple, which is there's a demarcation pre and post financial crisis. And if you think about the financial crisis and its after effects, I think there's no doubt that the brand value of large firms has changed uh, irreparably and not for the better. And as a result, uh, there's this tremendous opportunity for smaller, more entrepreneurial firms to capitalize on that. But if you built out a balance sheet light firm pre-financial crisis, I think the challenges you had were twofold. Number one, the best and the brightest, most talented bankers were quite content at the big firms. And second, there really was not proof of concept operating off of a smaller platform. And what has happened over the past decade or so is those two conditions no longer are in evidence. I think there's clear proof of concept. And there are very few people who are happy and content at the large firms. So if you can build it out with those two conditions present, but with no legacy and emerge post-financial crisis, our vision is you can be first by being last. And by coming to the party late but being able to tap into all of that desire on the part of the most talented bankers to come and to coalesce with others to build a new firm, uh, that's that's really the secret sauce that we have.
0: And I want to talk about how you attract a lot of these bankers because you've hired a ton of people from really all across the street, big banks, small banks, uh, a lot, as we've talked about before, initially from your, your own previous firm, Morgan Stanley, but now really from everywhere. What's the sell? Why, why come to PJT as opposed to going, if I'm a banker going to work for Centerview or Lazard or Evercore?
1: Well, I think, as I said, it's really important that those two conditions be present. The fact that you have uh, you know, a generation of somewhat discontented bankers and clear proof of concept where folks have been quite successful operating off of smaller platforms. From there, what we find is most of the bankers who we speak to love many of the aspects of being in a big firm. They love uh, the gang tackling. They love the fact that there's all this resonant expertise inside the building. And what they're trying to do is to replicate as much of that as possible, but to leave behind those parts of their employment that they don't particularly enjoy. And because we're at Greenfields, I think that really uh, appeals to the startup nature and the entrepreneurial sense of a lot of folks But because it's very clear that we are onto something that is going to be quite successful, we're tapping into really the best uh, of both. We we like to talk about our firm as being 30 years new. And because there's a 30-year history and a lineage and a legacy, it gives people the confidence that by joining our firm, it's a firm that's going to succeed. But because it's new, it appeals to their entrepreneurial spirit. And they know that by joining our firm, there's plenty of white space and an opportunity to make a lasting impact. And then finally, because we're building this business out post-financial crisis, we're not having to do things that others had to do, which was to put individuals on a commission basis or or make it more of a franchise model. This is very much trying to to bring the best and the brightest together and to build an environment that's conducive to teamwork. So if you're at a big bank, chances are you like the the gang tackling. You liked the interdependence with other parts of the firm. And we're trying to replicate all of that, but just leaving some of the other things behind.
0: So you're in charge of this firm, your CEO, your chairman, your founder, you obviously have a lot of responsibility for shaping the culture of the firm, doing the hiring and really t- sort of taking it in the direction that you've just described. How much of your sort of work as a rainmaker and as an advisor to some of these huge companies have you had to sacrifice to, to really achieve this, this building out of PJT?
1: Well, you have to you have to do it all. So one of the things that I learned when I was a wild gochall was I I thought about all of the firms that had come before PJT, and what they had done well, and I tried to emulate that, and some of the mistakes that had tripped up some others, and tried to avoid that. And one of the things that was very clear to me early on is you need a very strong, deep group of professional managers. You need to build out that infrastructure. And that many firms before us had run aground because they were overly focused on the rainmaking but not the management of the business. And that's why when we went out to get a chief financial officer, a head of uh, HR, uh, a managing partner, a chief operating officer, a general counsel, we put in place an infrastructure that truly is second to none and that is built for a firm many times the size of our firm. So that has given me more reign to do the things that are necessary to build out a firm in the early days. And, And the two things that are most important in the early days are getting the right people. And that's a deeply personal sell. And to make sure that we start off with a broad base of clients. And again, that requires a lot of effort and personal focus. And I've tried to do all of that, but recognize that one individual, no matter how talented they are, can't do all of that. So you need to build out a team and do it as a team.
0: Just sort of on the topic of advice, we as the press often talk about sort of individual rainmakers, individual bankers having brilliant relationships, often being <clears> in the biggest deals. But we don't necessarily know or describe very well what that means in terms of, you know, when I, if I'm a company and I hire Paul Taubman, what am I getting and what gets Paul Taubman into the boardroom of some of these big companies?
1: Well, advice is a, is a complex sale because it's very difficult in a 30- or 60-minute bake-off to really uh, convince a, a client of your ability to give advice and to give advice in what are typically long-tailed assignments that are quite complicated and elaborate. So like, like the business itself, it's really an apprenticeship-driven model. And it's an experiential model, meaning it may be difficult in 60 minutes to know what good advice is, but if you've been with a trusted advisor over a project from beginning to end, and you've had many twists and turns, you come out the other end knowing whether or not you've been well-served or not, whether the banker has your best interests at heart, whether the banker is easy to work with whether the banker has relationships around the globe to get things done when things need to be done whether they have gravitas and credibility in the boardroom and on and on and on so for those of us who've been in the business a long time it's really a, a lifetime a professional lifetime of experience that has has helped forge one's uh, skill set and i think what you're getting in the boardroom typically with those who've been doing this for many years, is a very broad experience set. And you've seen so many different situations that when things do take the wrong turn or they become more challenging, you've seen it and you know how to react.
0: And has that market for advice changed significantly in the sort of current period, particularly under Trump and in regards to what that means for the the corporate environment and particularly for certain sectors in, in regards to, I suppose, deregulation?
1: The need for for advice, for trusted advice, never goes out of style. And I think sometimes in bull markets, things have the illusion of being easy that almost anyone can do it. And I oftentimes say that the biggest enemy to good advice is, is a roaring bull market. Because in a hyped up market, most every business that's put on the market sells and sells at or above the initial indication. Uh, deals uh, seem well re, uh, responded to in the marketplace, whether they're well architected or not. And almost anyone, you know, has the the near term illusion of success. It's only when the market becomes more difficult and more challenging, and businesses, you know, need more creativity to find the right buyer, or there's a complex story one needs to sell through where the market is skeptical about mergers, but you're able to position the story in such a way that the stock uh, trades up uh, post-announcement. And what I see right now is a recognition that the world has become a bit more complicated. And I think that's good for our business, both in the short and long term.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson pete Join us on the Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And how has it got more complicated? What, what sort of? I'm, I'm always trying to figure out where we are in the cycle and what the the current set of challenges are.
1: Well, I think I think one of the challenges today is a lack of clarity around tax regime, and that's been well well discussed, well documented, and I think that that for some transactions, has uh, caused folks to take a wait-and-see approach. I think because the, uh, the antitrust division of this administration really hasn't ruled on, on large, uh, complex, challenging uh, business combinations, there still is not a clear roadmap as to what passes muster and what doesn't. So inevitably, those two question marks will clarify. What I see right now as the most challenging is, as the market keeps grinding higher and higher and higher, there's increasing resistance on the part of uh, merger participants to embrace the current valuations in the marketplace. And I've said this for a while, I think you need one of two things. You either need to see enough economic data and enough uh, earnings growth to justify the current multiples, or you need to see a pullback and get valuations back in line with fundamentals. But increasingly, I've seen valuation as the biggest challenge to getting deals done.
0: But I feel like the valuation to fundamental dislocation has been present for four or five years now, and it has not done anything to slow down deals.
1: Well, I think at some point, people get very concerned that we're long in the tooth with this economic expansion. We're long in the tooth with this bull market. And no one wants to be the one holding the bag. And I think every every month that goes by that we're still dealing with this uh, run-up in prices, where it's not clear that the growth trajectory has uh, accelerated beyond the 2% plus or minus, with all of the political uncertainties uh, that we see around the globe, uh, with um, an administration that has yet been able to Achieve legislative successes. I think it's it's just made people inherently more cautious, and I think the market has been more discriminating about large M and A than it has been uh, previously.
0: Do you think the advisory community is becoming sort of more cautious in what it's telling the companies it advises to do in terms of you know going out and doing deals or not doing deals?
1: I don't think there's um, been much of a much of a sea change. Uh, I think. People are always, you know, evaluating whether or not now is the right time to move forward with transactions. And what I see right now are two things um, that perhaps push and pull in different directions. The first one is technological disruption. And there is no doubt that as this world speeds up and technology is increasingly creating winners and losers. And you see it in the retailing space. You see it almost every place you look, uh, you see it in the energy space because some of the technology has you know, given us bountiful uh, energy supply. I think every time you create a winner and there is a dislocation and a potential loser, it causes CEOs to say, if I'm not comfortable with the position I occupy today, I need to think about either getting out of this business or fortifying this business. So, the cost of standing still is much greater today than it was five years ago. And I predict that the cost of standing still will be much greater five years from now than it is today, which is why, as the world speeds up, as CEOs and boards of directors are quicker to react to their portfolio configurations to make sure that they're one step ahead and that they're not left behind, that's a positive for m and activity. So I see m and activity, baseline m and activity, increasing over time in reaction to the increased pace of technological disruption. I think in the short term, what you're seeing right now are some human emotions, which are without clear understanding of what the tax policy is, certain deals that might make sense today but would potentially chart a different course if I knew where tax legislation was going to be, I'm going to wait. In a world where it seems as if the world's gotten a bit scarier in the near term and where rates are likely to move somewhat higher and in a world where growth doesn't seem to be you know, taking off but valuations are very robust, maybe I want to see a few more data points before I rush in. So I think we're seeing a little bit of near-term caution, but the long-term impetus is for people to shorten their holding periods on portfolio assets than than we've seen previously.
0: It's so interesting because it's almost the inverse driver of what we traditionally see in M&A, which is a sort of expansionist empire-building type thing, to it sounds like much more a, a sort of restructuring of existing Entire industries business models portfolios etc to become either more streamlined or more focused um, i suppose to take advantage of the changing nature of, of technology in the business landscape
1: look in in, in the old days every time an m a idea was presented to either buy or to sell there was always the default and the default was to do nothing stand pat and hold where you are and to take action to either buy or to sell was viewed as injecting risk into the business. But when you see the disruption in the advertising model in this world with what Google and Facebook and others have been able to do, when you see the disruption in the retail model Whole Foods, with what, Amazon, Amazon, Whole Foods, everyone all of is that. being crushed. That means that standing still is now the riskier alternative. And therefore, that isn't going to change. You can't have a world where portfolio managers are shortening their hold periods and where the world is speeding up and where companies that fail to take action may find themselves on the wrong end and not have boardrooms and chief executive officers and chief uh, development officers constantly asking themselves whether or not they need to change their mix of portfolio businesses. And one other thing, if we get tax reform, There are many businesses that should not be part of existing corporate structures, but the tax friction is so great that even though the right business decision devoid of taxes is to sell, with the tax friction, it may be to hold. If you can get tax reform, tax relief, lower rates, I predict you'll see a number of those businesses where the friction costs have been reduced you'll see more pruning of portfolios, more rationalization, and greater focus.
0: Sort of old line conglomerates being broken up, essentially because they're not going to have to wear the tax, the tax burden.
1: Yeah. And if you just think, think about how many transactions get done today using spin-offs or the so-called reverse Morris Trust, companies are contorting themselves into structures to divest businesses and not pay taxes. If you can get that marginal rate down, I predict you'll see a lot of companies saying, "Okay, let's make this decision not based on tax friction or tax leakage. Let's make this decision whether or not this business is best is best operated under our ownership, or whether there's a better combination." And I think freed of that friction, you will see uh, another increase in uh, in M and A activity.
0: Yeah, and I suppose deals that are done under the reverse Morris trust or tax spins. Generally, it's a very limited sort of scope of, of deals that can actually occur like that. Yeah.
1: And uh, it, it limits the scope of buyers. It uh, forces companies to contort themselves. And still, there's a reasonably robust uh, number of companies that use that as a way to divest businesses in an effort to avoid taxes. You get a lower marginal rate, I predict you'll see more regular way divestitures. Which should be good for the boutique business, I think all of these things set up well for the boutique business. I think M&A is always going to be a cyclical business. So it's going to go up and down. It's never going to be you know, in a straight line. But the fundamental baseline of M&A activity is going to go up for all the reasons we talked about with the rate of change, the pace of innovation uh, speeding up. This world is speeding up. It's not slowing down. I also believe that more and more of the talent – that exists is migrating to smaller, more focused firms. And when people ask me what's the long-term market share for big firms versus small firms, I, I, I say you're asking the wrong question. The question is, tell me where the talent is going. And if the talent continues to migrate from larger firms to smaller firms, as I believe it will, then that's where you know the flow of business is gonna migrate from larger firms to smaller firms. There's always gonna be a role for big firms and for smaller, more focused firms, but fundamentally, where the talent goes determines where the clients go.
0: But to be more focused, you also need to you know, keep that size relatively small.
1: Well, focus. one way to be focused is to be focused on the advisory product. And if it's a firm that's built around advice and not around other businesses, Sales and trading. So you're not crossing a like, like
0: balance sheet, et cetera.
1: Then that's one way to do this. We, we've always maintained that the sweet spot for us is to be large enough so that we can bring together all of the requisite disciplines, the ability to tap into uh, uh, the business environments around the globe. So we can do business in the UK. We can do business in Europe, in Latin America, in Asia. We need to be global because our clients are global. We need to have credibility in the boardroom. We need to have deep domain knowledge and expertise. We need to uh, have clear insights into the trading of securities so that we understand investors, investor sentiment, how to position equities to have a view as to what the the likely market reaction to a stock-for-stock deal will be. We need to be able to advise clients on liability management to help them negotiate their uh, committed event financing, to have a view as to how to take down the bridge financing. So increasingly, our firm needs to be able to do all of those things, to, to go from advice with a small A to advice with a capital A. But we don't want to be so big that we're slaves to league tables and that we feel a need to do every deal. It's got to be about the client. And it's got to be about delivering the best for our client, not about being the biggest. And I firmly believe that there is a scale where you're big enough to bring all this under one tent, but not to be so intoxicated with just size for size's sake.
0: So I have to ask this. Your iPhone is on the table, but I know about your person somewhere is a tiny flip phone that has been the subject of many, many anecdotes and stories written about you. What's, what's with the the two phones? And particularly, what's with the kind of 1990s Motorola, Motorola phone?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I, I think I've met more people uh, by just uh, putting that uh, phone down next to me and having uh, curiosity. uh Seekers come up and ask me about it. So it's a great icebreaker. But it's a it's a very functional phone in the sense that it's got great battery life. I'm on the phone all the time. And I can't be in a situation where I'm traveling and uh, my iPhone's drained and I have no power. I also am uh, old school and don't believe in headsets and all of that. But I have to believe that with a dumb phone like that, uh, there's less uh, electricity frying my brain. So uh, it's safety, it's convenience, and uh, it gets folks like you to ask about it. So it's all good.
0: There you go. Triple whammy. So that's it for this week's episode. Uh, you can expect more Bloomberg Reports and M&A professionals who are doing deals in real time. Until then, you can find us on Bloomberg Terminal or at Bloomberg.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any app that you can listen to podcasts. And take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. You can find me on Twitter at EdHammondNY. Paul, do you you tweet? Do we have a Twitter handle for you? uh,
1: We do not have one. We do not.
0: So there's no Talbot Twitter handle. Um, Our producer is Sarah Patterson and Alec McCabe is the head of podcasts.